Hello and welcome to Build Momentum, a show where we explore thought leadership and education. I'm Sarah Williamson, the founder of SWPR Group. And I'm Katie Lash, the director of the East Central Educational Service Center. Together, we explore how to leverage key partners, your constituencies, and the media to authentically impact your organizations and the leaders who champion them. We can't wait to get started, so let's dive into today's show. On today's episode, we have the pleasure of welcoming Julia Fallon, the Executive Director of the State Educational Technology Directors Association, CEDA, to the show today. Nice to meet you, Julia. Nice to meet you, too. Julia, so great to have you. So excited you could be here. Thank you, Ellen Ullman, for setting this up. Appreciate that. So, Julia, I love how you describe yourself as a technology and learning alchemist. Will you tell us more about that? And also, you know, the mission of CETA, a little bit more about CETA. Sure. Um, I'll start with the mission of CETA because that's the easier part or <laughs> the more succinct part. So we are a group of state and U.S. territory, state level, Department of Ed folks that are primarily either working with educational technology or digital learning initiatives. Back in the day when we were founded, which is now 21 years ago, Title II Part D under No Child Left Behind basically created the technology ed tech funding that we had at the time. And there was directors and they wanted colleagues to chat with and they got together. And this is how they've been doing this sort of collaborative work, leveraging, in essence, a professional learning community around this effort and everything else. So we've been doing this for 21 years, representing the state level or the state viewpoint in the policy space and advocacy space. In terms of me, I call myself an alchemist because I think of like back in my gaming days, like, you know, when you're like a mage running around World of Warcraft for those people that understand World of Warcraft, but just kind of thinking about how technology and learning work together and it's kind of creating magic in essence and helping folks understand what that potential is and kind of pitfalls to watch out for and everything else. But I started off actually back in the day. Now I'm really going to date myself. So as an undergrad at New York University, I was working in academic computing. At the time, I didn't realize it was really ed tech, but it really was how do you use tools and, you know, you have computer labs for people to get projects done and all of that stuff. And I kind of got sucked in there when I was completing my undergrad degree. And that, when the commercialization of the internet came on, you know, you're already on a campus network, you have these skills. I was designing websites, which for those of you that remember WordPerfect 5.1, reveal codes, looks a lot like HTML, and those skills were transferable. So I was able to kind of get in when the internet was becoming the thing and then helping schools and libraries understand how to use those things. I spent some time with the University of Michigan and helping their backbone network. But I ended up in K-12 almost by accident. I moved back out to the West Coast. I'm a native Washingtonian and was doing some work with tech prep. So career and tech ed and helping people understand that IT careers are not just computer programming. There's web design, there's technical writing, there's database administrators and helping with students that were learning those types of skills in high school that were getting college credit. And being a female in a non-traditional career also got, I think, the attention of the Department of Ed here and said, hey, will you come and help our CTE folks understand how this kind of works and how you can develop programs for IT in high schools. And that's how I ended up at the department. I didn't think I was going to be there very long. And then 16 and a half years later, of course, um, I'm, I was still there. But when I came to the Department of, it's called the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction here in Washington State, I came in not thinking, I, like I said, I'm to five years tops. And then working on, hey, everybody kind of needs IT, like 
digital literacy skills if you're going into a career. Every career uses it. I mean, if you think about it, GIS is used by farmers. You know what I mean? We use productivity tools. So that attracted the ed tech folks in our building saying, you should come work with K-8. And I'm like, you don't understand. I really don't understand this thing. I'm just kind of here on the industry side. And that got me interested in Pepperdine and a master's in ed tech program which to me was one of the best learning experiences of my life. And it was 85% online, just by the way that the teachers were facilitating things and everything else. And the next thing I know, I'm part of CETA when I became OSPI. And again, it feeds that technology and love of learning. Like you learn something new every day. It's not boring. And there's a passion there, right? I feel like if you have the skills to access and participate, you'll go a long way in your life, not just the 18 years you spend with us, you know, as from birth to zero. So, yeah. I'll stop there. That's a long answer right there. That's fantastic. <laughs> Love it. No, that's really interesting too. Well, we shared uh, right before we started recording, we shared that although I never met her personally, Indiana is definitely respects and honors Candace Dodson, who you said you knew very well from your work there at CETA. So you've been part of the organization for a while. Yeah, I was there since 2004, but Candace came in probably, I want to say in the mid-teens and maybe the early teens at this point. And she and I became fast friends. I don't know if it was just the love of not goofing around because that doesn't sound right. But like, you know what I mean? Like you should be having fun while you're doing it too, right? Some stuff is hard, but it can be hard fun. And, you know, her spirit, her energy and everything else. And I had the privilege when I was board chair of CETA at the time to actually hire her into the position as executive director. And I know that the Department of Ed in Indiana, along with a lot of practitioners in Indiana were sad about that. And I understood that sadness, but we were happy to have her on the stage representing us as state leaders and everything else. And we carry her legacy on in multiple things that we do at the organization and in our community. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful thing. Again, I didn't know her personally, but everyone says the same things, like lovely things about her. So it, yeah, everyone honors that memory. So also, I wanted to say that I took one coding class in my life and it was like, that was good. I thought I'm done. But I do love ed tech. But I did not realize <laughs> that when you were describing some of your work, I was like, oh man, that's giving me flashbacks of that really hard class I took. But so the next question for you, I completed a comprehensive report on state ed tech trends. So what did you discover were some of the priorities for technology and learning? And then what surprised you? And we heard you have another. So fill us in on all of that. So we decided last year to sort of put together our first survey and report, right? Like what kind of were the trends? Prior to the pandemic, there's lots of things that we were working on that the pandemic in essence highlighted. And I know Candace and I often joke that we wanted to get I told you so shirts when the pandemic initially started because we we're like, oh, these problems have always been here or the gaps. We, we've been working on them and now we can actually accelerate and take advantage in some ways of closing some gaps. Like I thought in my lifetime, I'd never see all of our households being connected. I can actually see that being happening in my lifetime, which is a kind of a cool thing. But to kind of get a sense of what states were working on, like where is their priorities and everything, we did a survey and we actually had a really great response rate, including from our U.S. territories. If it wasn't from directly our ed tech directors, it was from CIOs or state chiefs or somebody in the cabinet level, or it was somebody in their governor's office working on policy there in the education space. And the things that you would expect to hear in terms of things are people are really concerned about educator recruitment and retention, right? We are showing that we have a workforce that is tired or they just are thinking that this is not for me anymore and they're moving on. Professional learning for those educators, right? Right now, I really believe that the investment we need to make is into our educators to help them really think about how they can design the classroom 
using technology. Sometimes technology isn't the appropriate thing to do, but thinking about all students and how you reach all students and how you can extend their learning. So if we just invested in devices and learning management systems, you can still continue to use those even though we're all back in person. It helps the student connect back to their learning. It helps them to keep on track. It helps them to connect to high quality teachers. It helps them connect to high quality materials. So we talk about that and what professional learning is. Cybersecurity is top of mind, one, because it has a direct impact if there is a breach, right? So you could shut a whole entire school down. You can affect budgeting. You know, I believe there's a story that just came out last week. They paid over a quarter million dollars, right, to get their stuff back. And it's just top of mind. We're trying to figure out how we battle it. As a sector, and when I say that as like a K-12 education, we're a little bit different than other sectors. You can't just take one business model and kind of put it and apply the same sort of thing. We have a whole population of folks that are under the age of 18, totally different beast, you know, in terms of developmental levels and, you know, password, like thinking about a three, you know, like a third grader and their passwords, like it's a whole different kind of approach that you're going to take and everything else. But, you know, basically saying that the states don't have ample funding for cybersecurity and where do we have a role as a state in kind of helping mitigate some of that stuff. For example, Connecticut has bought DDoS defense software for the entire state. So it's not coming out of a school district's individual budget. They can use that money for something else that is another maybe mitigation layer for cybersecurity. And the other thing that we found in terms of top priorities is you know, access to the internet, we're way closer, right? We know that 97, I think is the last time I read, 97% of folks are connected, but we still have 3% that aren't. And we still need to work on getting those communities connected. And typically we're finding it's either geography. So I always talk about the Cascades here in Washington state. If you're in a valley somewhere, you probably have the same challenges for connectivity as maybe the hills of West Virginia and broadband that doesn't necessarily show up in your community because it's just, it's not, what's there and available. So how do we help get those folks connected as well? So I kind of think those are the top ones. In essence, cybersecurity really caught everybody's headlines, though, just because it's the thing that everybody's really talking about. Interestingly, like our agency, we help schools with property and liability insurance, like as a consortium model. And I've heard a lot of like the costs of that insurance, really because of like the claims that you were just describing, like those claims drive up the cost for everyone. And so that's a thing that interestingly does bleed into my day job a little bit. Well, and if you think about it, insurance is actually part of the reason why we're talking about it, right? Insurance companies are requiring districts to have better mitigation strategies and everything else. And you have to invest somewhere, right? This is one of those places where preventative is definitely the place where you want to put your money versus shutting down an entire school, you impact an entire community. And that, you know, we experienced that during the pandemic. If you shut down school, you impact the community as a whole. People can't get to work. Their kids are at school. You know, how do you do continuation of learning? That's not what you want to have happen. And in smaller districts, you don't have a staff. You don't have a cybersecurity staff. It's probably the math teacher who's also running your technology that has to do some cybersecurity, but it's a shared burden, right? It's a shared thing. We all are responsible for keeping our passwords safe and not falling for phishing attempts and all of that kind of stuff. So it's one of those things that everybody kind of needs to know. And those skills actually will serve you beyond the system if you ever leave the system. It's not like it's only in our sector. So we talked a lot about cybersecurity, but something specific in your organization is a cybersecurity collaborative. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So with funding from the Melinda Gates Foundation, we pulled together, in essence, what we call a collaborative. 
It's another way of saying a professional learning community to help our state folks come up with ways that they can leverage and sort of learn from each other. Because like I mentioned, Connecticut is doing one thing, there's other states doing other things. So how can we leverage? And also policy takes a long time to develop sometimes. And in order to kind of ahead of it, you kind of want to talk about the issues so that way you can advocate for them and then hopefully shorten the policy development cycle to put those things in place. So we created out of that collaborative a bunch of of free resources, actually. You can go to our OER Commons. One is just a policy brief. It's sort of, and I call it a policy brief, and I use air quotes when I say that, is because it's really just a high-level What is the issue? What are we actually advocating for? And then what are states doing in these areas? So, you know, in common definitions, does everybody know what a firewall is? Does everybody know what DDoS mitigation software is? It kind of just gives you a very high level. And it's for us as technology people to give it to the non-tech people, right? Like here, here's a quick read about why we talk about cybersecurity and why we're advocating for it. And also like as a companion to that, we have some papers where it talks about incident response planning. So what are states doing collectively around there. So there's examples from different states about how they deal with incident response planning, procurement, things like that, so that we can actually have some resources. So a state doesn't have to start from scratch. So if a state all of a sudden they say, hey, we're going to do this, hey, there's other states. And it's a great way to say, so what did you learn? Are there any pitfalls that you know about? You know, how did you position this? Or, you know, you can say to your policy folks, hey, we can do exactly what Connecticut's doing and I can give you all the details. And that's so it's just a great way to share resources. And what we're trying to do is really help states get a handle on it and create common messaging, right, that we can get out there. We really believe that states have a role to play. It really depends on your state, though, of course, because everybody talks about being local control, and that means different things for different regions. But the idea is that what can you do as a state and how can you leverage what other states have already done so that you don't have to start from scratch? And that's always been the beauty of CEDA. We just sort of did it around cybersecurity and privacy as one of the areas. We also have a Title II collaborative for those folks working in Title II. We also have one for E-Rate at the moment. That's such a perfect segue, Juliet. I think that you set that up perfectly. This show is all about thought leadership and education. And clearly, exactly what you just shared is you're establishing thought leadership around these key themes and then bringing people together and systematizing and sharing information, key messages, all the things that we just love in PR. So I'm curious, how have you thought about these things from that perspective? How have you thought about unifying your voice through CETA and really elevating your message, elevating your profile? What are the things you're doing aside from some of these collisions? Anything or is that kind of really the strategy? Are you an education leader, the leader of an ed tech company, or a member of an organization supporting education? We continue to hear from leaders like you who have a story to tell, a message to share, or an important initiative that needs greater awareness. Three years ago, that's exactly what we heard from Doug Roberts, the CEO of the Institute for Education Innovation, when he approached SWPR Group. This led to the launch of a groundbreaking new award that was unlike any other in ed tech. The Soup's Choice Awards, judged exclusively by K-12 superintendents, set IEI on a path to market dominance, increasing vendor partners and superintendent members by more than 30% year over year. Jamie Candy, the CEO of Edmentum, shared with SWPR Group the EdTech company's desire to tell district success stories and to elevate the leaders behind their organization in a more thoughtful and strategic way. Throughout the past two years, SWPR Group has established consistent and regular media coverage, 
authored compelling op-eds, and secured interviews highlighting success stories while also inserting momentum into timely topics like AI with national reporters. At SWPR Group, we provide public relations, communication strategies, and thought leadership support for today's change makers and the brands they champion. We work together with our clients to bring their mission to life by consistently delivering high quality content, creative communication strategies, and transformational results. What story do you want to tell? Reach out to us using the link in the show notes or visit our website at swpr-group.com. always been that it's just sort of but it's also I mean we do it under the guise of like we're a luring community and we just happen to be deep diving maybe into specific areas but also we're not expecting our ed tech leaders to be everything right I'm not going to be the experts if I lean boxes and wires heavy as we say then I probably know a lot more there if you lean more instructional then we have folks that you can kind of lean on so that you're not no one's going to be like the perfect ed tech director that understands all of the issues deeply especially a lot of them are new to the role right we have a lot of new members to our space but also there's a lots of all of a sudden new offices of ed tech one thing that came out of that state trends report is only half of the states have something that they even call something along there they call it different things but in terms of the functionality only half of them do and after the pandemic, we realized you probably need to have a little bit more of a coordinated effort. But, you know, like we have one around Title II. So we have all the Title II coordinators, right? And while it's not specifically ed tech, it is a federal program where effective use of technology is built into their allowable uses. And we want them to know and support that professional learning that has to happen. And there's federal funds for that, that every LEA gets and every state gets that they can use for those things. E-rate is another collaborative. And those folks not that they run on their own, they are very self-motivated and self-led, but the E-rate program is the largest amount of monies that districts get for technology. It's not appropriated by Congress, right? Congress doesn't on a whim change it or whatnot. They may have rules that they implement, make the FCC implement, but it's really a lot of money that districts get for connectivity that doesn't come out of them, their general budget. So we always advocate for that. And that is that access, right? We want access to good teachers, high quality, and it's no longer just our school campuses. It's also wherever the student is after school, right? Once they leave our campus, can we get them connected back to their classrooms? So some things that we're thinking of down the pike is research and evidence. We don't really talk about that a lot in ed tech and we need to get better about it. Like what does it mean to be, it's almost like better consumers. So like when we're walking an ISTE conference exhibit hall and someone says, hey, I have this great, you know, reading intervention program, we can have a better conversation with them about like, well, tell me about the results that you've seen? Have you done any research? If you haven't, would you be willing to do it with me? And, you know, we can start doing a theory of action and we can do a lit review and kind of see if it works because, and then how does that research then get more broadly shared so that other people can look at it and either modify it. But the idea is that kind of have to practice what we preach and they do that in other industries, but we want to know that technology won't be like the silver bullet. It's never going to be the silver bullet, but then how do you ferret out how an application might've been used and if it's a great instructional practice that actually thing, then maybe it would get replicated more and more. And we don't spend money just for the sake of spending money in, on technology. So we're looking at research and evidence. We were looking at one around data modernization, which is another fancy word for interoperability and getting systems to talk to one another. So we had a collaborative, it's kind of gone dormant, but we're about to light it up again with some more work. So it's just feeding and caring those communities, right? Like you think about any online community, how do you feed and care it? They have to come around a common interest, and then you have to kind of give them things to work on until they can kind of go on their own and you nurture them. And every single one has a different sort of 
flavor, if there's anything in culture and everything else, and you want to be able to support those types of things. Yeah. Well, you're doing a great job. Thanks. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I've been really fascinated with AI and VR, specifically after Christina Ishmael, which we were talking about. We all know her now. I mean, I know her via, you know, the podcast, but we're besties. Anyway, STP, STP, the same 10 people. I learned that phrase last week and it's so true. Like the world becomes smaller, but um, yeah, Christina from the US Department of Education. But how are you seeing AI and VR just appear everywhere? Well, I have to tell you, by the way, Christina does have a connection to CETA. She was the state member from Nebraska back in the day before she went on to the Department of Ed. So we have a definitely a CETA connection there and everything. AI and VR. So VR sort of, I feel like it's still off in like a ring like Saturn. It's just kind of going around. AI is the hot topic right now. And what's interesting is when we did the survey, we said, is there anything we should be looking at, right? Because we're trying to kind of gauge what's coming next. I want to know what train's going to come in. And nobody really talked about AI. So we were laughing because we're like, oh, that's interesting. Nobody really thought it was on the radar on the horizon. And it actually is. I mean, obviously with chat, G, what is it? GT8. I can't talk all of a sudden. GPT. Yeah. yeah, that stuff just came out. Bar just came out. I think Microsoft just added something to Bing. I mean, like all of a sudden it's there. We're all talking about it, right? Because the first reaction for most districts, like we're just going to ban it. And we're like, well, good luck with that. It's like banning Google. Like, how are you going to do that? Yeah. The better conversation that we want to have is how is this going to change instructional practice? What are the value statements that are really going to be discussed? Like I keep hearing words about academic integrity and cheating. And I'm like, oh, well, what does that exactly mean? I mean, in our day to day, I don't get in trouble if I go to Google and look something up. But do I have the skills to determine whether or not what I'm looking at is correct or, you know, like it's good information or how do I verify it? Like it's those critical thinking skills. So I think there's going to be some conversations around how you harness the power of AI, especially in those applications in your classrooms and policy wise, like what is it going to look like? You know what I mean? There's AI that's just spitting out, obviously, algorithms. The algorithms are perfect, right? Like, and I think about how do you judge what a kid's looking for a query? Like, because that could give you comprehension too, too. Like, hey, you would have to do something. Give me that. So we're trying to figure out what that looks like in the K-12 space. But I think it's really a conversation that educators need to have. And the IT folks just need to be in a position where they can talk about, hey, these are the pros and the cons. You know, we can't outright ban it. It's going to be hard to outright ban it. So how do you want to figure out how we support it in the classrooms that we have. So, and helping teachers understand how to harness it, really to harness it. It should save time for people. That's the thing, right? If I need an Mm -hmm. extra use policy, I can ask it to generate one. It gives me a seed to start from, but then do I understand what I'm getting back? We're just kind of lay of the land of AI. No, that's because I was having this conversation with someone the other day. Do you think that when spell check came around, people thought the same thing, right? (laughs) Like that's cheating. Maybe. Yes, I bet you they did. Yeah. And I keep thinking about... like I mean, this is next level. It's totally next level. But you think about how much information is out there. What they did is they crawled it and they said, okay, so what's the predictive next word? If I write these three things, what would be the predictive next thing? And they... I love it in some ways. I'm a little scared about the video portion because that... Like, how are you going to verify whether or not somebody actually... Like, that to me is like next level... But in terms of like, if a kid can do a really good query, it gets something and maybe it's an oral presentation or maybe they have to, you know, there's another ways to assess that they understand what they're reading and they get it back. So the example that we used today during our conversation was we had to memorize the 50 capitals, right? Of all the states. Yeah. And 
is that a good use of time anymore if they can Google it in 2.5 seconds? But then how do they know they got the right thing? You know, how do they know that the information is correct? So they need to know something. But how important is it they need to know the state capitals? Is it because we learned it before and that's the way we share it with our predecessors, right? Or is it something else that we can show that we have that knowledge and we can get access to it and then we can do something? It's a calculator. I mean, I think about the TI calculators. Nobody wanted calculators. You still need to know math, though, whether or not it's kind of giving you the right answer. I mean, I Full disclosure, I talk to Sarah most days of the week, and I don't know her phone number. I do not know it. <laughs> yep. I think it's True. kind of the same thing, right? It like, is. My brain doesn't hold her number, but I talk to her all the time. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it freezes up for higher-level cognitive tasks as humans, and it doesn't devalue the lower-level ones. I think that's where people think, well, and I'm like, it doesn't devalue that. It doesn't mean that what you, when you learned it had any less value. It's just that we've evolved and technology is here to automate. I mean, I think about it, it automates a lot of things. Had we had the pandemic 10 years ago, think about video conferencing. It used to be like you had to book a room and then you had 14 people got involved and the thing got plugged in and you had to show up somewhere. And now I'm in my house, you know, talking to people around the world and it's okay. And if we didn't have that technology, the pandemic would have been a lot worse than it was, you know what I mean? In terms of people being able to access things. Do you know another celebrity in my life? I'm going to let you ask another question in a second, Sarah. But a celebrity to me is Jamie Marisotis, CEO of the Lumina Foundation. Anyway, if you haven't read it, or whoever's listening to this podcast, if I haven't named this book like 10 times, then you should listen to it now. Human Work in the Age of Smart Machines. So it's kind of what we're discussing, right? Is that like training students for, I mean, he's talking about it like societal level, but I think about the same parallel of training students for like, there's going to be things that we can't automate. So like, let's just kind of acknowledge that some of it is about to happen and prepare for the human work. Such a good book. If you haven't read it. Well, I think of a book I read, The Lexus and the Olive Tree. And it's an old, I probably have it in my bookcase back here. It's an old book, but older like not old, like from your times or whatever, but like probably in the 1990s, it talks about the olive tree, which is really about identity, right? We want community. We want to know that we belong someplace. We don't want it to be so vanilla that we look like we're all the same and everything else because there's no identity there. But then you think about the Lexus, the Lexus is all built by robots, right? The Japanese have tweaked that technology so well that it's, you know, you have three people on a floor. You don't need a hundred people anymore to build those cars and the robots do it. And then they are left to design those cars and, you know, make them look pretty. So people buy them and everything else. It's that type of work. And we're going back and forth between it automates that to make it easier versus we want identity. And when I think about the pandemic, nobody was crying about the bell schedule or science lab in the pandemic. They were talking about proms, sports, things where a community could come together, where you could see each other and connect. That's what they missed. So the question is, how do we use technology to create that learning community, right? In our schools so that people want to be connected and they can be connected even if they're not physically on campus. That's so true. Yeah. Good point. I like that comparison. So what are you hopeful about when you think about the future? Is there anything that really gets you excited and keeps you hopeful? I think it goes back to there's silver linings in the pandemic and I'm hoping that we take advantage of them. It's highlighted a lot of the gaps that we had and the reality. And there's communities that we haven't served and we didn't serve well. And there's different ways to now serve them. I'm hopeful that we connect all households. And it's not just for education. It's for everybody. Whether you want to check out a library book or you want to do banking online or get a job, being connected and the internet helps us do that, right? And I believe it's something that in terms of a country, economic development, health and well-being, everything is kind of tied to that. So I'm excited that I believe we're going to get there and figure that out for everybody, right? Get them all connected. I'm hopeful for... 
I don't know, I feel like we're having some really good conversations post-pandemic in ways to capitalize on the gains that we made, you know, getting into the research and evidence kind of piece. Like, how do we show that there's good stuff here? How do we become better consumers? And we're not just buying things because, you know, we had a really good sales pitch or something else. It's also on the developers, right? So this is not just on us. It's also helping the developers understand that accessibility has to be built in, interoperability has to be built in, right? There's things that we want as part of the ecosystem. And EdTech is in here. It's not just for the schools that have access and have the money. It's for everybody. It really does make a difference. So I, I think I'm hopeful about that. I'm hopeful that we came out. I'm hopeful. I'm glad that we came out somewhat looking forward versus looking back mm-hmm. in terms of our group. So, yep. I have said this on every other episode, but when you're naming ways that you need to have broadband, like if you want to do a podcast at home at your house, then you need internet. I'm struggling right now. I can see myself getting grainy. But I live in the middle of the cornfields of nowhere, which I love. But there's just not enough population to justify the cost of running fiber. But all of that to say, it was so good to talk to you, Julia. Tell us where people can learn more about you, follow up with you. Sure. So I'm going to give you the CETA website. It's www.setda.org. They can find me on Twitter at Julia Fallon. Fallon like Jimmy, I always say. So spelled like F-A-L-L-O-N, like Jimmy Fallon. And you can always reach out there. You can reach out at CETA on Twitter as well. We're on LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect with people there and everything else. And conferences, our CETA staff will be at COSIN, we'll be at ISTE. We tend to wear bright green ribbons. You know, I know that people like that badge candy. We have green ribbons that we put on our, we hand out actually to our community so they can recognize each other. Because sometimes they don't know, they only know a name, right? They don't know what somebody looks like because you're either Mm -hmm. behind a Zoom or whatever. And that's the way we have our community connect to each other in those spaces because we show up in those spaces. Awesome. Thank you so much, Julia. We appreciate your time. This has been fantastic. Thanks for having me. If you're looking for more of this thought leadership goodness for your organization, you're in the right place. Visit us at swpr-group.com to learn more about how we work with education organizations and their leaders, superintendents, and influencers to increase your impact. Again, that's swpr-group.com. Thanks for tuning in today and we will see you next time on Build Momentum.